living easy, living free, season ticket on a one-way ride, asking nothing, leave me be, taking everything in my stride, don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't nothing I would rather do, going down party time, my friends are going to be there too, yeah? What comes next? I understand you don't want to say it. I'm on the highway to hell. I know I, I should have sung it, but then you'd all leave. It's uh, the classic ACDC song that it's kind of hard not to sing. It's just, it's so catchy. But that, that kind of anthem that they sing out, I'm on the highway to hell, like rejoicing in that. Is that true? Is that the destination? And is that something to celebrate or make light of, like the singer is willingly heading there by choice? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. As we continue this series, going through the parables of Jesus as recorded in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 13, we will pick up in verse 47. Matthew 13, 47 starts. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is again using a parable or a a short story to illustrate a spiritual truth, but he's again teaching us about what the kingdom of heaven is like. Because the kingdom of heaven is like this. And remember that the kingdom of heaven is where we see the rule and reign of God. And so we see that as Jesus comes to this earth, God the Son, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, he takes on human flesh, and in his advent, the kingdom of God breaks back into this world in a way that will no longer be absent from this world. And yet we live in this tension of it is here, and yet it is not fully here. The already, not yet. That Jesus comes and he does these amazing things, demonstrating the kingdom of God where his rule, his reign, his will is done. And now we see it lingering here and advancing to the nations by the power of the gospel, the spirit empowering us, the church, those of us Christians who follow in the way of Jesus, that we live under our king's rule and reign, that we gladly submit to it, though the rest of the world may rebel against it. And so Jesus is again teaching us about this kingdom that one day will encompass all. That right now, there is much opposed to the kingdom of God, but one day everything will be wrapped up in this kingdom. And Jesus provides us an interpretation of this one. He doesn't always do that with the parables, but sometimes he does, and this time he does. He gives us the interpretation. And so two major features of this parable that I want us to see today. Um, One is the widespread call of the gospel, and two is the judgment of the gospel. That the gospel, the kingdom, is not to be separated from the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come to give us life and to teach us what it is to live in life in his kingdom. And it's this widespread call, but it's also this judgment that comes with it. And so we have to see these two as highly related. We'll start with the widespread call of the gospel. The widespread call of the gospel, in this way, it's very much like other parables we've already covered. Very much like the parable of the sower, the parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the leaven. That seemingly insignificant it will grow to be amazing. And he says, it's like a net. Catches all these fish indiscriminately. Um, A net, like this, is a small cast net my dad and I use 
Um, this small cast net, um, it's, this is small. And so in their context, what they would be envisioning would be something considerably larger than this. But the idea that you have weights on one side and an opening, and then you'd have ropes or some way of drawing the fish back in. And so they would often take these massive nets that they would continually have to be mending because they'd get stuck and snagging on different things. But they would stretch these nets from one boat to another boat or from shore to a boat, and they would cover large swaths of water. And just every fish in that realm would just get stuck in these nets, and then they would drag them to shore. And notice the parable even says they sat down. I went, this is exhausting work. Um, how many times do you recall it in the Gospels where the disciples have this miraculous catch because of what Jesus has told them, and they struggle to bring it in? That it's, it's threatening to swamp the boat, or they just cannot do it. Tons of fish coming in indiscriminately, trying to cover as much ground as thoroughly as possible. Jesus says that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. You don't escape it. The call of the gospel, the invitation of salvation that is the gospel, is an invitation to all, to the whole world. That everyone will get swept up in this net. But contrary to the popular book by Rob Bell that love wins, Love does win, but not in the way that he says. Because this invitation is to all, but it does not mean that salvation will be for all. Because you hear the words of Jesus. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that leads us to the judgment of the gospel. The judgment of the gospel. That a net, like when we cast the net out, we don't get to decide exactly what is in there and out of there. You just throw it out and try to catch everything that is within range of that net. It grabs it all. The net does not move on its own and just decide yes or no to different species. It grabs every species there. The net goes out indiscriminately, but that does not mean there is not an ultimate differentiation. There is. I love fishing. Uh, you've probably heard that. You probably know that if you've been around here very long at all. But I'll go fishing, and, and I, I make this comment to my dad like every time we go fishing that we go and we're targeting specific species. Uh, we're, we're targeting these fish that we like to eat. And so that's what we want. Like, I, I want to catch a fish and then eat a fish, okay? Um, there, there's nothing wrong with sport fishing where you catch and release. That's okay. Um, maybe every once in a while we'll do that, but well, I want to eat it. Um, and it also helps the bank account. But we go out and we're catching fish. And sometimes I'll hook onto something that's just like, man, it's a fighting fish. Like, it's so exciting. And like, like pulling drag, like it's, it's got the, the, the rod is doubled over and it's fighting and you get this excitement of like, oh, like, and it's so exciting when like, you don't see it. And like, what is it? How big is it going to be? Like all the questions. And then you get it to the boat. And sometimes it's not the species I want. It's something like a silly ladyfish, which is really fun to catch because they jump and they go crazy and all this stuff. Or a silly catfish, which ask Quaid, you don't want to catch one of those. Um, they're, they're not good to catch. They're not good to eat. Even though Scott says that he ate one, it's disgusting. You're like, you don't want these things. But I've got to tell you that if I'm honest, the excitement of catching a ladyfish or a catfish is really high. Like, it's a lot of fun to catch them. But the moment that I see that that's what that fish is, I'm angry. Like, angry. That is not the fish that I wanted. Because I don't get to eat that one. And so, I cast it out. And I catch a fish. I don't get to decide what fish it is. But when it comes into my boat... I get to decide whether I want that fish or not. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Going to go out, the widespread call of the gospel. But then there is this judgment 
that also comes with the gospel. That not all fish get to stay. Some of them are worthless. Some of them are discarded. Jesus interprets this parable to say that in the end of the age, the angels will separate out the righteous from the unrighteous. And what is to be done with the evil people? Hell. And that does make us very uncomfortable. And it should make us very uncomfortable. The doctrine of hell is not an easy doctrine. It's a very hard doctrine. And when I, when I speak of hell, like I know that in you, every one of you, there is some part of you that either kind of bristles and just goes immediately to a place of hurting because you have a name that you associate with that. Or you have, you have this fear inside of yourself that like, what if that is my destination? Or you kind of like puff your chest up and you stifle some of these feelings. And you'd rather think of it as this cold doctrine that yes, this is logical and this is right and this is what the Bible says. And so we just accept it. Say, no, don't do that. This should unsettle us. This is not in my notes, but Romans chapter 9. Some of you may be familiar with it, but Romans chapter 9, Paul is about to unpack what proves to be a really difficult doctrine. And before he says some really hard things, this is what he starts. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Paul says, I'm about to say something really hard, but before I say it, I want you to hear my heart. My heart is, I wish that I could be damned if it meant that you could have salvation. Is that your heart? Is that my heart when we hear about hell? To think, I know the horror of that, but I'm so moved that I love you so much that I would give up my right to eternal life if it meant that you could avoid damnation. And let's just jump ahead to the end of the sermon. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the heart of God? The God, the Son, says, I would rather be damned if it means that you could come have everlasting life. And so Jesus was forsaken so that we would not be. That Jesus took our place and bore the wrath of God, poured out on God, so that we would not have to bear it. How would you trust in him? But could we, as we go into this doctrine, could we have that kind of humility? Could we have that posture to say, man, it's heavy. And it comes with so much pain, even now. Be honest about that. So, as we consider the doctrine of God, we have to consider the justice and wrath of God. Um, it probably begs questions for many of you. To think, when I think of hell, I have to think, like, is God just? If hell is real, is God really just? Would he really create people and send them to hell? And is God really a God of wrath? And that can be so hard to reconcile with like God of love, but God of wrath. And, and sometimes we have this really unhealthy way of separating out God, that like the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, God of the Old Testament, angry, really punitive, judgmental. But then God of New Testament, Jesus, feathery hair, gentle, probably walks around like this. 
It's the same God. And he has been incredibly gracious and merciful from start to finish. He does not change. And therefore, we are not consumed. The God of grace and mercy and love is also a God of wrath. And they are not inseparable. They are good. The majority of people, I'm convinced, cannot see God as just if hell is real or accept that God has wrath, um, largely because we have attempted to recreate God in our own image of what we think is right or wrong. And so we have to let God be God. Let him reveal himself to us. See, this is good. He is good. Hell and wrath are just. If God is holy, if God is absolutely perfect in every way and justly deserving of all glory and honor, and there is rebellion against that, there is rebellion against God's holiness, his infinite majesty, that we have rebelled against that, and instead of submitting to that, we instead push against it and say, no, I'll claim it for myself, that I'll take your place, I'll decide what's right and wrong, I'll decide who I will live for, what I will live for, namely me, most of all then if he is perfect and holy, does he not absolutely, is he not absolutely justified in having wrath for that? Saying no justice must be met. If he were to just turn away and like, yeah, let it be what it is, he would not be just. But he is both just and the justifier, that he makes things right. And he has real wrath. And wrath is actually a natural byproduct of love when the beloved is hurt. Like, you cannot tell me that a mother or father who dearly loves their children would stand by and be completely emotionless, devoid of wrath, if they watched their loved child be cruelly hurt by someone. If you love your child and you see someone hurting your child, you righteously should have wrath for that. And so it is with God. That because he loves us so much, because he is loving, and there is sin, there is hurt, he rightly has wrath. And so you don't try to pit the two against each other. They actually work together. That hell, this reality of God's justice being appeased, the wrath of God, they are not unjust. They're actually the very result of his justice. It is real. And so when we think of hell, and we see it is hard for us, we're going to be honest about that, but it is also just. And the wrath of God is absolutely just as well then we hold these things in tension and we accept them, we submit to them and we're sobered by them. They sober us. They humble us. They draw us to God, not away from him. In the, in the words of Luther, I'll paraphrase greatly, but he says, you know, it's, it's like all of creation, every human is running headlong straight to hell. And God in his infinite mercy and grace says, no, 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 you turn around, you turn around. You turn around and he grabs us. So when we think of hell, I think a good starting place is the very start of Scripture. You know what the opening words were? In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. Somehow, for many of us, we have changed that. And somehow we start to think, not God created the heavens and the earth, but in the beginning he created heaven and hell. That in our minds we have this idea of like, there's heaven and there's hell. And no, hell is not supposed to be the counter of heaven. Supposedly, he created the heavens and the earth. That is what he created. But in our rebellion, this new thing comes about. And so we start with God is good. He created the heavens and the earth, not heaven and hell. And so this is going to go on screen 
Um, you, can, you can pick a fight with me later, but um, this is where I'm trying to like, compress a lot of Scripture's teaching. Um, even this morning, I'm still getting over something. I haven't fully got my voice back, but hey, this morning I cut out like, a lot of content because this is, this is hard, and I want you to see like, a biblical view of this, um, but instead of reading like, 15 passages to you, here, here's my summary statement, and, and if you'd like those passages, please talk to me. I would gladly give them to you. But hell is not the counter of heaven. It is the sovereignly separated containment of evil where God's wrath, whether passive or active, is experienced as God delivers them over to what they have chosen, experienced as great suffering without relief. The key passages in hell, on hell, they describe it in this way. Eternal and unquenchable fire, outer darkness, destruction, inescapable, wrath, torment forever, no rest, punishment, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and many more. But that is the reality of hell, described in those terms. It should sober us. It should push us to God and holiness. I think this is real. But with our modern comforts and medicines, I think that we largely miss the gravity of what continual pain, like continual anguish, is really like. Like weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you think of gnashing of teeth, do you know the kind of pain that makes you just like, you're trying to eat your teeth? Like you are clenching your jaw so hard that your teeth are gnashing together. Do you know that kind of pain? And to imagine that just going on and on, there is no relief for it. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, um, let me start with saying, that the word hell, you'll see it in our English translations over and over, um, but that's actually a translation of a, a few various words, like Sheol or Hades or Gehenna is a, is a, a, a favorite of Jesus. And so we, I think, very rightly um, use the word hell to capture what it's being spoken of, but Sheol or Hades is often, in the Old Testament especially, like a, a, a reference to the place of the dead, but then there becomes this distinguishment that there's a place of the dead for those who are comforted by the Lord, and there's a place of the dead for those who are in eternal torment. And so there's a torment that doesn't end. And so Jesus often used Gehenna. And Gehenna uh, would be kind of like a parable in and of itself. It's, it's an illustration that the people of Israel would completely understand because Gehenna was like the city dump for Jerusalem. And so you go outside of the city of Jerusalem and there's Gehenna, which is this massive trash heap. And everybody would know about it and you'd hope that you didn't live on that side of the city if the wind changed directions because it would stink it was very vile, and it was constantly smoking because they were constantly burning the trash. And so this trash heap was always on fire. And so that's how Jesus is using that, saying, like, that's what hell is like. That you look at that trash dump outside the city, and the way that it's constantly burning and smoldering, and how if you were very poor or you had um, no status or, or people to help bury you, um, you would actually have your corpse thrown into Gehenna. And so when Jesus says, where their maggots never die, he's saying, like the corpses out there, if the maggot consumes all of what it's eating, it dies. Or if the fire comes through and consumes all of what the maggot was eating, the maggot dies. Jesus says, their maggot never dies. And so Jesus would refer to Gehenna, and they would think, trash heap, constantly burning vile, disgusting, 
horrific, but contained. It's separated out. It goes away from the city. We don't want that in here. See the way that Jesus illustrates this in Luke chapter 16. We don't know if this was a parable or a historic, but Jesus is teaching, and this is how he teaches us about what the nature of, of hell is like. Um, in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19, it says, There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. So this guy is very wealthy, very comfortable, feasting lavishly, like every day is a party. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. As so what do we see? As Jesus shares this, he gives us this window into this reality. There's a rich man and there's a poor man who both die and they find themselves in different locales. One, the rich man, is in a place of torment. It's, it's this place of torment. It's so hot, like there's this fire. And he says, man, if, it would just be such a relief if you could just send him to just dip his finger. Like, I'm not even asking for a bottle of water. I'm not asking for a fire hose. Like, just let him just dip his finger into some water and then come place it on my tongue. And oh, the relief. Like that level of agony. That that's what he's asking for. He's in great pain. And yet what is his heart posture? He's unrepentant. There is no remorse for what brought him here. In fact, there's, there's blame shifting. There's, there's this further request for more about him. He's unrepentant. Do you notice the fact that he's not even talking to God? Like, he's talking to Abraham. Did Abraham bring you here? No. But he still can't bring himself to talk to God. Still thinking that he is now somehow still above Lazarus that he sees Lazarus, that was the beggar at my gate that I never helped. Send him, send Lazarus to come cool my tongue just slightly. That he still puts himself in a higher status than Lazarus. Do you see how delusional the man is? That the man is not even called by name. That Lazarus is called by name, but this rich man doesn't even get a name. That it's like he has lost his own identity. He is so self-consumed that he has actually lost his own identity and still trying to consume others. 
the more inward we bend, oddly enough, the more we lose ourselves and others. In the words of, of Paul in Romans chapter 1, as he's, as he's making the argument for what we would call total depravity, that, that we are all fallen, that we're all sinful in desperate need of a Savior beyond ourselves, that we could never be good enough. You cannot do enough good to earn God's favor. As he's making this argument, there's a repeated refrain that says that God turned them over to themselves. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. And you see, that's, that's what the reality is in hell. As God's saying, have it your way. And the way that consumes you and becomes this great torment. And that's not just to say that you're going to have a hard life. No, it's, it's an actual destination. The essence of it is God saying, okay, embrace your own chaos, your self-absorption. See where it leads you. And God gave them over. God gave them over. Do you see the man in torment is still so self-consumed? Like he chose it. On the highway to hell. That's where I'm going. And he's celebrating. What? It's absurd. But you think back to our parable, like this net. Do you think that fish want to go in the net? No, they don't. They don't want to be caught. I've caught a lot of fish, and I've never caught one that was like really excited about it. They don't want to be caught. And so when you think of hell, and we think of like, how could God send someone to hell? Like, you don't understand, like, it's very consistent in Scripture. They actually chose this. No one goes to hell not wanting to go there. And that doesn't mean that you're going to articulate like, oh, I don't want to go to hell. It's just God saying, have it your way. God gave them over. God gave them over. The fish would naturally try to escape the net. Why? Because we go back to our parable. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous. So it begs the question, how can we be righteous? I want to be righteous. How can one be righteous? What makes one righteous? At 1 John 1.9, John says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That your only hope for being righteous, your only hope for avoiding hell, but much more than that, because it's not just about avoiding hell. It's about living with God who created you to be with him forever. It's enjoying God. It's being who you were meant to be. What is your hope for that? It's God. God alone. He is our salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If we confess our sins, we admit that our hearts are treacherous, we have no good in and of ourselves, that we desperately need a salvation from outside of us. And who is salvation? It is God himself who has come. Jesus, the Son of God, who lived a sinless life. He was righteous. And then he gave us his righteousness on the cross. And he took our sin on himself and put it to death as he died the death that you and I deserve. But then he rose victorious over sin and death on the third day so that we could live with him forever. And he says, repent. So confess, you are a sinner. You cannot do this on your own. You need a savior. His name is Jesus. And you confess him to be Lord, turning from your sin, turning to your savior. And you follow him, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead with the certainty that yes, hell should sober us. But you don't have to be afraid, Christian. Because who can condemn us? No one, nothing. Because God, God has taken our place. 
And he has given us his righteousness. And so we Christians are the righteous. Trust in him. Confess. Do you remember what the rich man said in Hades? He says, Father, then I beg you to send to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. What does Abraham say? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham. Yeah, excuses. Like, but, but I didn't. But I didn't. So like, they won't either. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. What does Abraham said? If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And you know what happens? Someone rises from the dead. Jesus conquers sin and death, comes back from the dead, and yet, still so many reject him. Why? Because it is our choice. Confess our sins. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The king came back from the dead, and yet many are not persuaded. And the king of the kingdom is saying, this is what the kingdom is like. Big net. We can catch it all. But there will be a sorting in the end. Will you submit to the king? What a wonder. The God who is perfect in every way would take on imperfection. Even more blatant, he would take on the rebellion of his own creation. Why? Why would he do that? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. This is the heart of God. He loves us. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The heart of God is he says, I don't take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. It's a wide net, and he's saying the reality is many are going to hell. But what's his heart? He wants everyone to turn from their sin, to turn to him. And so we go back to Matthew in this parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. Such is the kingdom of heaven. The widespread call of the gospel and the judgment of the gospel. What do we do with that? What we do with that is you live today in light of the day to come. Be honest about this. We live today in light of the day to come. And that means we need to love internally and externally. Love internally, because Hebrews 3, uh, 12 to 13 says, watch out, brothers and sisters. This is family language. Watch out, brothers and sisters. Church, watch out, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. That we need each other and not just on Sunday. We need each other daily. You need to be in community with believers who daily can encourage you to say, sin is deceptive, it will harden your heart. Yes, salvation is the sovereign work of God who will hold us and nothing can take us out of his hand, including ourselves. And yet, scripture also says, confirm your calling and election. Prove it to be the case that you are his. Pursue holiness. This obedience matters. 
And we need each other to say, hey, don't be deceived. Sin is deceptive. Watch out for each other. Push each other on to love and good works because in this broken body, the propensity of sin and what it does to us is that our love grows cold. We need to stir each other up, spur each other on. We need each other. You need to be in a home group. Sign up for one. You need to have a discipline practicing partner. You need someone who is a believer in your life who says, hey, these things matter. How are you doing? What's going on? How can I encourage you? What can I bear with you? How can we rejoice together and how can we weep together? We need each other. We need to be connected beyond Sunday because it is daily. But then there's the external side of this. Externally, when you see the wide call of the gospel and all these fish come in, we have to care. We need to go, in the words of Jesus, go, therefore, because he has all power, go. Go and make disciples of the nations. We preach the gospel, we baptize them in the name of our triune God. Go, we have to care. No one's gonna escape the net that is the kingdom. We're all gonna be caught in it and sorted. This week I was listening to a podcast, ironically, just it's a, a philosophy podcast, and he was talking about anarchy, of all things. But you know, one thing really caught me, he was talking about the, the need for police. And he, and he makes this case that, you know, if, if your neighbor, like tonight, you go home, kids have to go to school in the morning, I gotta get up, I gotta get to work, like all this stuff, and you start to lay down, you're always like, boom, boom, boom. Like, neighbors are having a party, and it's so loud. Like, you hear them having the time of their life, and you're just, like, gripping the sheets, like, I need to sleep. The kids are waking up. They're crying again. Like, ah, what do you do? What do you do? You call the police. So, you know, that is such a recent phenomenon. Because 50, 100 years ago, or far less, you know what you'd have done? You'd have got up out of bed and walked next door. Hey, neighbor. If you guys are having a great time, but we're trying to sleep. Do you mind turning it down just a little? <laughs> nah, just call the police. He <laughs> says, you know, in fact, actually, you wouldn't have walked over and asked them to turn it down because you're neighbors. You would have been invited to the party. You'd be having a good time with them. But we continue on this trajectory of self-absorption and isolation. We have to be shaken. Wake up while it is today. Love. Care about people around you. We must care. Because the king loves them too. And he's called you to invite them into the kingdom. So can you believe this good news? And will you share it? The band's going to come. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I thank you. You're so good. You're so kind. You're so merciful. And you are just. So as we talk about hell, may it sober us. May we submit to what you have taught us in your word. And let us live rightly in response to it. That you have saved us, Jesus. And Spirit, you will preserve us. You will keep us. You will finish the work that was begun. But God, would you give us hearts that feel the urgency the need to share this hope with the world that you are a loving God, that yes, we're guilty, but you are so loving, you're so gracious, and there's hope in the name of Jesus. Make us a church that makes much of you. I love you.
And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.